So beyond grit, beyond 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, beyond some genetic talent, the singular advantage that most of the fulfilled innovators that I've researched, interviewed, and studied have an abiding connection to a sense of wonder in one way or another that we can unpack. So I've corroborated that over and over again, and now there is an emerging science of wonder to corroborate that as well. So what is wonder? And how on earth do we track it? So wonder is a heightened state of awareness that's brought about by something that delights us or disorients us or both. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll have one aha moment after another. But the guests we're talking about, talking with these days, I'm constantly looking out at the world that seems very complex and finding new ways to go forward. Our guest today is one of these folks in the world that's pointing to a perspective that is so timely. There is this enormous wave of goodness and progress happening right now that no one knows nearly enough about. And our guest, Jeffrey Davis, is talking about how we engage with wonder. And that's something that we at the Goodness Exchange, the the parent website of the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, really like to shine a light on. The wonder of people who are doing good in the world is astonishing. And we are talking to them right here on the podcast and having them share with us why they think the future is still bright. We need to know what they know. We need to know how how they get around obstacles and they think about things that happen with an opportunity perspective far more often than a threat. So today we talk about wonder and how we can use that in our lives to make the world around us better and to live more beautiful lives with the one that we get. Today we're going to meet Jeffrey Davis, author of the book, Tracking Wonder. The subtitle is fantastic. Reclaiming a life of meaning and possibility in a world obsessed with productivity. This is where we are right now. And this is what I love about Jeffrey's work. He's writing for Psychology Today and all kinds of outlets about the intersection between our working life, the creativity, and our, our human flourishing. I love that word flourishing. And we're gonna, we're gonna add to that concept through this whole interview. Jeffrey consults with businesses and individuals and organizations all over the world and helps people make the most of this one beautiful life and the best of their ideas and their dreams. So welcome, Jeffrey Davis. Thank you, Linda. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's just it's just a joy. You know, I am admittedly one of those people who I, I grew up in a household where you were measured by how much you can get done in a day. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's the water in which many of us swim in this world, right? And obsessed with productivity. So it's yeah. kind of baked into us in certain ways that we're not even aware of sometimes. No, and you know, even with just a few minutes that we got to chat right before this interview, I could tell right off um, that you are you are pointing us to other ways of looking at um, at our world that could be so much more helpful because times have changed. What what worked four years ago, even two years ago, doesn't seem to fit well after what we've all been through in the last two years. Very true. One of my regular practices every morning, I have about three or four of them, but one of them is to check in every morning with what I'm what am I devoted to, which is a practice that helps me and helps other innovators stand in love, not just fall in love with an idea. So I asked like, what am I devoted to? So I'm genuinely devoted every day to helping us reimagine how we work and how we live and thrive outside of work. So yeah, if this conversation contributes to that, I will be glad. I love that question. What are we devoted to? Because it's so easy to be on autopilot and not even be able to answer that question. Yeah, that's true. I I think we... We're interesting mammals, human beings. Part of our wiring is what I would call a sort of default wiring by necessity. Part of our evolution has helped us develop a sort of default wiring where we can go on sort of autopilot. So we're not having to relearn everything every morning. Like, oh, that is an alarm clock. 
Oh, that is a doorknob. Oh, right. So the sort of survival element allows us to go on a default autopilot. The challenge is to disrupt the default. And the other curious thing about being a human is that we do have the ability to trip our own wiring. So by me having a, a number of people, sort of what I call geniuses of creativity, ask themselves that question every morning, it disrupts the default tendency these days, which among many of my clients is to check their notifications, is to wake up, see what's buzzing on their device. Instead, to allow some time in the morning for a little bit more deliberate inquisitiveness uh, really can disrupt at default. And so that question, what am I devoted to, does come out of, well, it comes out of, I think, several things that are relevant to our conversation today. One is a lot of my work is based on the premise that every big idea begets a series of challenges. Every big idea. You want to make a film? Ask Ken Burns what making a film is like. He says, every film I've made has been a million nightmares. So you're like, well, why make the next one? <laughs> because he's devoted. He said when he got the idea, when, when a friend of his in Dallas gave him the idea for a, um, a film on country Western music, he said they just had this whole bodied yes that went through him. That's devotion. So another premise of our work is that it's one thing to fall in love with an idea like, oh, I want to write a book or, oh, I want to change careers. But it's another thing to fall in love, right, with the dream that you're devoted to. So we use that, that practice of asking what I'm devoted to because at the root of that word, Linda, is um, vow. And the origins of vow are, is like one of the oldest Sanskrit syllables, vak, from which we get voice and vocation, what we're called to. So, okay, that was a little unexpected riff on just one way to actually foster a little wonder every morning and really stand in love and stand in wonder with what you do and why. Well, you know, this is, and it's consistent with, with, a, with this principle of trying to ask better questions, mm -hmm. to find a way forward, ask better questions, you know? So I, I, lo I love that. And please don't hesitate through this whole interview to give practical little things like that, because some will resonate and, and with others and some, and that's how we go forward is to share the stuff that works for, for each of us, right? So, you know, let's start right at the beginning. Let's help us define wonder. It, is it something that we can all agree upon? I kind of thought it was, but we had a little conversation in the beginning before we turned on the record button. And you really improved my way of thinking on that. Talk to us about wonder in general. Sure. I will define wonder, I promise you. But let me give just a little background for your listeners, because I've been on this journey for over 15 years, and I could probably trace back lots of other connections for why. I'm on this journey now. So over 15 years ago, I became interested in these experiences of wonder when I was actually researching another book related to creativity. And I was just curious about what is this quality when we're in the creative process where we experience the sense of surprise and delight. And I was led to another text that illuminated the sense of wonder being this sort of joy-filled amazement, this quality that characterizes you when you when you recognize that this ordinary reality is the ultimate reality and that this is it. And and I had my own sort of whole body guess when I read that. And that's when I started to really refocus much of my attention personally at the time and then later professionally to trying to understand what is wonder and then how could I actually practice it and track it? So I did what I normally do. I started researching in lots of different fields from the Eastern and Western traditions. There was barely a science of wonder. It was more of a science of awe. And I was speaking with Dr. Keltner at UC Berkeley about some of that emerging research. So there's relatively little science of wonder at the time. So I'm, I'm saying this because the definition comes much later after a lot of exploration. Fast forward a couple of years after that, and I experienced really my own sort of summer of 400 blows. My wife, Hillary, and I were newly married. We had found our dream house, this farmhouse with my own version of Walden Woods and Pond Out Back. She had her sunny office and garden. And literally within less than a couple of years after that, uh, I contract Lyme disease uh, for the first of what would be several times, which is this 
kind of really strange, debilitating disease. I thought I'd gotten through like the first round of antibiotics and then lightning strikes our farmhouse in some strange electric storm and sends a fire roaring through the whole farmhouse. And including like, if you're watching the video, everything you see behind me was completely demolished. And so it was during that period, we're out of the house for like 15 something months. And we're like, hmm, boy, you're just about to start your dreams together. You think you're going to have a couple of wonderlings, maybe roam in the, the yard someday. And you're like, wow, okay. Now really tracking wonder really begins. So once I had time to recover and go through some of the turmoil, I did get really curious again and asked myself, well, how do people, maybe what I now call fulfilled innovators, ultimately thrive amidst rapid challenge and adversity? And what does wonder have to do with that? So that was a number of years ago. It turns out my hypothesis was actually like spot on. So beyond grit, beyond 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, beyond some genetic talent, the singular advantage that most of the fulfilled innovators that I've researched, interviewed, and studied have an abiding connection to a sense of wonder in one way or another that we can unpack. So I've corroborated that over and over again, and now there is an emerging science of wonder to corroborate that as well. So what is wonder? And how on earth do we track it? So wonder is a heightened state of awareness that's brought about by something that delights us or disorients us or both. So the day after that fire, I came back to my study. I was grateful that my 21-year-old cat had been rescued by a neighbor. I was grateful that we just happened not to be in the farmhouse at the time. So we were okay and unscathed. I was grateful that the house didn't get completely leveled, that the firefighters actually fought to keep it somewhat intact. But I came back to see what books I could salvage because that was so much of my world because 20 years of archives had gone up in flames. This is pre-cloud, so my laptop with my next project had been burned. So I go back to look at the books and so I'm staring at a char, just like charred books everywhere. And there have been some holes knocked in the ceiling and the walls to let the flames escape and the firefighters. And I see out of the corner of my eye, this black char, this like yellow pulsing. It's like two palms in prayer almost just pulsing. And this morphed monarch had come in and landed in this black chart and everything that was balled up in me, undirected anger, because I didn't know what I was angry at and, and wanted to cry, but it couldn't, like all that just dissolved. All the meanness, all the me-centeredness just dissolved. And I, I felt so open, Linda, and that was delightful and disruptive. And just for a moment, I knew we'd be okay ultimately. <laughs> at some point, we'd be okay. That that little small winged, sign of hope was just enough, right, to keep me open and expansive in a time of great adversity. So wonder is, a, again, a heightened state of awareness, a heightened state of awareness brought about by something unexpected that either delights or disorients us or both. So the long way of the definition, but I think the backstory is important. And we can talk about some of the beautiful effects of these experiences as well for your, for your listeners and how we can track it. Absolutely. I, I'd like to pause right there because as you got to the butterfly part of that story, I would imagine that a lot of people listening to this have their own butterfly story, not necessarily involving a butterfly, but some moment that's sort of unexplainably wondrous. Absolutely. And, and, and it was and, probably and, in a time of crazy, like angst or something really vertigo and exactly. Thank you for that. Yes. You may have your own. Like I often say, you know, and you also have your own version of tick bites and house fires probably. Right. When it's just like one thing after another. And yet in that sometimes because of the psychological opposition, the unexpected stands out in relief that much more. I could have seen the butterfly three days earlier and I may not have noticed it, right? But in part because of that psychological opposition, it was right there. Like it tracked me and I was open to it in that moment. Mo wonder is so 
pervasive and evasive as an experience. It's so pervasive. It's always readily at our perceptual availability, but it's, but it's evasive too, and it's fleeting. So that moment lasted less than a minute, but here I am all these years later with its rippling effects for me. That, that's the beauty of moments of wonder as well. They have these profound rippling effects on us. So I'm sure people are doing what I'm doing, just like going through a catalog of these moments that we, we tell stories around the dinner table. It's, it's almost becomes kind of almost a family mythology when we try and share it with the people we love or people we care about. And I think we're, it's tempting very often to say, oh, it was meant to be. Tell mm. me what you think our brains are doing when we do that. Does it diminish the wonder by, I yeah, go I ahead. I, can tell. I think it does. And here's why. Because a lot of people after this, and I, I suspect for a variety of their own psychological reasons, were wanting me to make sense of the whole story. Like, why did this happen? Why did this happen to you? I'm like, I don't know, my Job wrestling with God? I don't know. Like, why did this happen to you? Uh, and and what, was that, what did that butterfly mean? And so forth. So I kind of refused to make a simple story of the meaning of everything. Maybe because at the time I just, I, I needed to keep, <laughs> I needed to keep it open-ended. But in retrospect, when we try to make too tight of meaning of, of something like that, we are closing off the wonder. We're like, oh, this means that. It's a way of distilling that uncertainty and that ambiguity, which is where wonder often resides. Yeah. Okay. So if that's true, then it makes me wonder if we don't have some opportunities in, in something you mentioned earlier. You mentioned that there's a lot of focusing on pathologies mm -hmm. these days, and there could be more done. And certainly that's important work and all that, but there could be a lot more done in bringing wonder to top of mind more often. So I'm a spelunker of the complexity of the mind, and it is rife with pathologies. And for, you know, over a hundred years in the field of psychology, which I greatly respect and I write for psychology today and talk with, and I'm friends with some remarkable psychologists doing great work, but we've had a language of pathology to identify and it's been useful, right? And our suffering has profoundly increased collectively, even in the past two and a half years. And we would be foolish and blind to deny the high rates, the increased rates of depression and anxiety of just weird behavior that's now happening, even the past couple of months that's being do documented, the increases in rage and disruption, right? The, we have our pathologies, but I don't know that we've always had a good language of possibility. So if you go to a therapist, it's very helpful if a therapist helps you say, oh, that's, that's guilt. Maybe that's guilt. And you're like, oh, that's what that is. Oh, that's shame. Oh, oh, that's, you know, and so, so, oh, that's the fear that I have. Oh, so that's useful, right? That's useful to identify those emotions. But I don't know that we've always had a language of possibility to be able to identify our own emotions of possibility and then to track them. So, I did not set off in this endeavor over 15 years ago to write a book that lays out, you know, at least six facets of wonder that give us a sort of map to the languages of, to the language of possibility. But that is what I'm hearing. It's done for people. And I'm so grateful that it has. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you that um, that's what instantly attracted me to, to your work when I did a little dive into your digital footprint is that <laughs> you were opening a window, if not sometimes kicking down a door towards possibility. Like, <laughs> this yeah. is it. Like we're all just prisoners of our limiting beliefs in some moments when we most need to be more open. Yes, and. And so I'll come back to the and in a moment that I'm really, really grappling with too in my work with other people and organizations. So the yes is, yes, we are in part limited by our own perceptions. This goes back to just the way we're wired. So I don't want to pathologize the way we're wired. It's just like, this is the way we're wired. And by survival instincts, we've like shut off a lot of things and increased novelty can be overwhelming as many of us felt with the sort of pandemic fatigue by 2021. We're like, okay, enough novelty, <laughs> right? So 
However, we do have the ability to become more aware of our limited perceptions. And, and we can, each of our minds operate with certain default patterns and what I call downer patterns sometimes that we can learn to identify and say, well, that's not completely real. Those downer patterns often show up in one of three ways, usually I or other statements like I am, I'm not creative. Uh, I'm not good enough. Right? This is one of my inner radio station's favorite 4 a.m. channels, you know, in the early mornings. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, you're no good. Uh, <laughs> you know, my prefrontal cortex has gone to sleep and the amygdala is wide awake. So, you know, so there's a downer pattern. Is that true? No. You know, is that, is, or is that completely true? No. Do I have room for improvement? Yes. <laughs> so, so eye patterns or other downer patterns. So projecting onto somebody else and like boxing somebody can be an incomplete downer pattern. Second category is situation. Like my work life sucks. That may not be completely true. That is an aspect of your default perception of your work life. And clearly there are some problems, lots of toxic workplaces. And the third is an idea that you have like, oh, this idea just isn't good enough. It's not worth my investment and, and so forth. So those are downer patterns that we have those default tendencies to, as you identified, we are limited in part by those downer patterns and perceptions. The and is we also, it's not all up to us as individuals to make the shifts that we need. And so because I work with people in organizations, because I'm increasingly aware of the systems, the cultural systems in which we live, we also need support around us to make the changes we need um, to shift our perception. Well, and, and I'd love for you to share with us this notion of how when we come at an opportunity where there, there could be a whole lot of wonder, any kind of learning opportunity. You know, I always tell my staff, if I'll sit through an eight hour course and get one pearl that I use every single day, it was worth the entire eight hours. But a lot of mm. times it's so easy to be in the first few minutes of a of a, a course, a continuing education course or something and recognize right off the, the speaker is just a horrible speaker and then just close down or be, or be put off by something, their clothing, their hair, some off the wall comment they make and then just miss all the possibility in those next eight hours. Talk to me about, about this notion. Let's see. How did you say? You said, I invite difficulty and you told this great story. Share that, that whole mindset shift with us. Sure, sure. So I do invite difficulty. I used to have a one of my teachings used to be move toward the difficult. And so people would say, I've got enough difficult. I don't need to move toward it. But, the, but quite often we want to escape discomfort. We want to escape what's difficult and or we want to fight what's difficult, right? That fight or flight. Experiences of wonder do two things. One is wonder is also a quiet disruptor of our biases. It's a quiet disruptor of our biases so that we can see again what is real and true and what is beautiful and possible about ourselves, about each other, about our life or work situation, or about a certain idea. And I see it happen over and over again. It's a quiet disruptor, right? That butterfly was a quiet disruptor. Um, a turkey walking across the streets of Boston is a quiet disruptor. Or a coworker whom you've sort of boxed in, maybe the coworker annoys you, and you sort of boxed that person in, you think you always know what their outlook is and quote who they are. And yet they say something, they share something with you that disrupts your bias of them. And for a moment, there's a moment of wonder there where you see their beauty again. So yes, I moved toward the difficult and recently, can't give too many details, but I, I do work with some teams and create some wonder labs for people. And one person just flat out said, I don't see the relationship of wonder and what it has to do with my work and my job. And, you know, and this is with the CEO and the rest of the team on. And like, I welcomed that voice. I welcomed the skeptics voice, maybe not the cynics, but the skeptics voice to the table because I have my own skepticism about lots of things. Doubt is healthy. But what I offered to that person was not to convince 
the person that she could bring wonder to her job. Instead, I said, be open for the next several hours to what experiences you have and just see if you have any moments of wonder. So let me just kind of go through the six facets of wonder for a moment for your listeners, because wonder comes in different varieties. And it's these six facets that have given people a language of possibility for their own experiences and have given them a sort of tool set to say, wow, with some practice, because it is practice, with some practice, I can actually change my experience of my conditions, even when I can't always change my conditions. So is it okay if I review those or should I stop? Yes, yes. Let's do this. Let's take a quick break to give a nod to another whole avenue of possibility. And when we come back, we're going to do just that. Uh, and I happen to know these, these six and they are precious. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back. Dr. Linda here. If you are hoping the world is a lot better than what we see on the news and social media, and if you've been overwhelmed by the misery and negativity coming from the screens in your life, I've got a wonderful connection for you. What I've learned after almost a decade of curating the internet for insight and innovation is that there is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows about yet. And that's what led me to create this podcast. And then I co-founded the Goodness Exchange. The Goodness Exchange is an amazing place on the internet now where you can enjoy unlimited access to hundreds of articles that give you a more complete, positive perspective about the state of the world. You can listen to exclusive bonus content from this podcast with our guests who are knee deep in solving some of the world's most vexing problems, and yet they still think the future is bright. We need to know what they know. And at the Goodness Exchange, you can explore a feed of exclusively good news and recommended other kinds of content created by the Goodness Exchange community. No one with good ideas and good intentions need feel alone again. You are right to hold out hope for humanity. Millions of people are out there creating a better world, and we have created a gathering place for all that wonder. Who knows what's possible now that there's a place on the internet created to bring out our best impulses and our collective genius. To explore the home for goodness on the internet, visit goodness-exchange.com backslash membership. Thanks. Okay, we're back. So let's dive into these six aspects of wonder. Yeah. So again, I didn't set off to lay out the six facets of wonder. This came after lots of research and applied research. I consider our Tracking Wonder Consultancy as sort of a living laboratory in our live events, our trainings, my private consulting. And it does come out of, you mentioned human flourishing. So I've identified like three areas of my research in human flourishing mindfulness and innovation. And so out of this work, I was like, oh, we can think of wonder as like this multifaceted gem, multifaceted gem. And every like, if you turn it and kind of see it from a different point of view, you see a different side, a different facet of wonder. And so I like to think of these six facets in three pairs, because it can help your listeners also sort of grasp the effects of each pair. So the first pair is probably the most common to us, openness and curiosity. So openness is the wide sky facet of wonder. It's this openness to new experiences that we ongoingly must foster and cultivate, particularly if we've got a new idea, we need to approach it with openness and even what I call an intelligent naivete. If you don't know what you're doing, all the more power to you at this stage. The second facet that's complementary is curiosity. And curiosity is the rebel facet because it questions the status quo way of doing things. It's when you're learning by doing and you're learning by experimenting. Instead of trying to be getting things perfect, you experiment and learn by doing. Those two facets together, really ongoing. I see it over and over again. It helps, they help us approach challenges with less reactivity and more creativity. The next two pair of facets are really interesting. Bewilderment and hope. Bewilderment is what I call the deep woods facet. This is the disorienting facet. This is Dorothy in her tornado moment. Like you and I just described like how we have our own versions of our tornado moments, right? One bad thing happens after another. We're in a different world and boom, she lands in Oz and she has that classic line that I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. 
Toto. And bewilderment is when our sense of our identity or an idea we thought was going to work out so well is profoundly confusing. And it's at this stage that we want to fertilize and not pathologize confusion. Then there's hope, which is not wishful thinking. It's a very proactive facet of wonder where we set our sights on just what's possible next. Maybe the scope of our sights is shorter, but it's just like, what can I do this week? I surround myself with other hopeful people. I engage in some deliberate, delicious daydreaming, and then I keep moving forward. And then the third pair of facets are possibly for our times, and you probably agree, possibly the most important. They were also the most surprising for me as a creative introvert that these were facets of wonder. But these are the relational social facets of wonder. Connection and admiration. So connection is what I call the flock facet. It, this is the facet that speaks to our longing to belong, to connect to something greater than ourselves. This is where we do experience wonder in the space between us, where we do the person who's, you know, the spouse whose sentences we think we can complete. It's the ability to see them anew differently and to see their beauty anew after however many years of being together. And the stranger, to see the stranger anew and in beautiful ways. Admiration is, to me, a fascinating facet of wonder. The root of the word is mira, M-I-R-A, which is Latin for wonder. This is the same word we get for mirror. Mirror, the admiration is the mirror facet. So I, I define admiration as the surprising love for someone's excellence and craft or character that can inspire the best in us. And you don't have to go to the Olympics to be inspired with admiration. Again, sometimes it's the people you work with or the people you work for, the people, the everyday people right around you that you can foster admiration. So there you go. Hold it. I hope just even that review switched some lights on some people to say, oh, actually now I'm in wonder with wonder. Because <laughs> that's where I've been for years. <laughs> well, I kept thinking as you were going through those six, at least there's three of them, the bewilderment in particular. It's so easy to to be on autopilot and, as you say, let our amygdala be in the driver's seat, which mm. is all about danger and disorder, to take that moment of bewilderment and instead of having that kind of reaction, you know, to shrink, to dodge, to to somehow tell ourselves a quick story and brush it off. It's so true. So, yes, you know, in, in, in the book, I tell the story of Tracy Fullerton, who maybe some of your people can identify with, at least in some way. So Tracy in the 90s was a pioneer in the dot-com field and an interactive entertainment. Her, her startup was known for like doing phenomenal things for the History Channel and other, other stations. And then the, then the dot-com crash came and her startup went under. Now, she could have just sought another job and tried to, you know, do what was ever, what was ever comfortable for her. But instead, she started to fertilize the confusion, so to speak. She went to a place that she was inspired by when she was a little girl. She grew up outside of Boston, and her father often took the family to Walden Pond, where Thoreau made famous uh, for deliberate living. And she went there as a place to deliberately daydream and to wonder what might be next. And she had to get kind of back in touch with her own values because she was contributing to interactive video, but she was not necessarily doing so deliberately. So she got really curious, like, wow, what if you could make video games that were contemplative and meditative instead of just shoot them up and overly stimulating? She sat in that question for long enough where eventually she got a job at USC heading up this state-of-the-art video center and digital lab. And then gradually, 10 years, she stayed in this question, gradually got funding for Walden, the video game, which is now an award-winning game. It's phenomenal. Now, in the whole process, like she got cancer in the whole process. She kept people together through wonder and curiosity, lots of challenges and hardships along the way still. But you see, she didn't just flee to the next safe thing. She stayed in that confusion long enough to not only 
create something beautiful, this wonderful contemplative game. She's also contributed quite a bit to the video field and creating more diversity and inclusivity in what was often just a white male dominated world. So I wanted to offer that as an example. Your listeners can maybe take this away. When you're feeling a state of confusion, first feel it. Try not to flee it. Maybe even describe what it feels like for you metaphorically. Does it feel like a tornado? Does it feel like you're floating in the air and vertigo? Because that's giving you some somatic information about your own emotional experience. And the second, and I don't mean this glibly, is to celebrate your confusion, potentially. As long as there's not true danger involved, to celebrate it because it quite often means you're past your comfort zone. You're moving somewhere where there may be a personal breakthrough in your identity and or whatever it is you're trying to move forward. The third is is to try to find a way to hold the space between where you were and where you might be going, right? For Tracy, it was actually going to Walden and just having that holding space. So sometimes even getting out of your familiar environment and just staying in your what if questions long enough for possibility is important. And then finally, to fertilize the confusion, try to do what you can do creatively to keep moving through the confusion and not try to just seek the easy answers. I hope that's helpful because I I love to work with people with bewilderment and teams with <laughs> bewilderment. Maybe in the past two years, people are saying, oh, that's what I've been experiencing. (laughs) As long as there's not true impending danger, right? So then we can actually fertilize the confusion. We try to almost, and this is our brain. I mean, I'm not, there's no flaw there, but our our brain is working so hard to make sense of the world around us. Mm-hmm. And in those last two years, I mean, it was hard enough before because we all have complex lives and complex people in our lives. But yeah. <laughs> this is way out there uh, past our growing edges, I call it. And and so it is that bewilderment. It is easy to react to it in a way that's, that closes you down instead of opens up for all that may be possible. Yes, it's so true. And, you know, there's a piece that we're kind of missing here that might go back to the, the core of our inquiry, which is if wonder is a quiet disruptor of our biases so that we can see again what is real and true, what is beautiful and possible. That most immediately applies to our own regard for ourselves and how we view ourselves. So this is where the work of what I call young genius comes into play. But this is really, really essential because if you think about like being in a moment of bewilderment, it's like, who are you bringing into the deep woods with you? Which part of you are you bringing into the deep woods with you? And I work with people who suddenly are in moments of grief and loss, adversity. And it's like, again, like, who can we bring to this? And I don't mean this in a glib way. So young genius, I don't use the term genius glibly at all. It comes in part from Greek philosophy, Aristotle, comes in part from art critic Charles Baudelaire, and it comes in part from current science. So so I'll do a quick tour there and make this immediately relevant for your listeners. Aristotle was kind of one of our first positive psychologists in the West. And Aristotle contended that we're each born with a sort of force of character or a daemon that's unique to everyone. Everyone on your team has their own unique, what's called daemon. In Greek, that might translate in English to genius. It is a unique force of character in you that if you can recognize it on a regular basis, it can guide you toward the work and life you're called toward. You're called toward, right? And the challenge is, according to Aristotle, we're all born forgetting. We travel through the mythic river Lethe of forgetfulness, and we're born forgetting our true nature and who we are. And so every once in a while, in certain moments, you will have like a moment of unforgetting, aletheia. You will have a moment of deep remembering of who you are. And sometimes that's when you're suddenly engaged in something where you feel so alive and free to express yourself uniquely without regard for reward. You're like, ah. That is in part what Aristotle described as eudaimonia, which is the basis for the science of human flourishing now. Eudaimonia, when all of your, you're like, your genius is all in the good places and all the roles all of the roles you're playing. So then fast forward to Charles Baudelaire, amazing art critic and poet in Paris in the 19th century, foresaw a lot of modern art in the 20th century. He he wrote that genius is the capacity to retrieve childhood at will. Genius is the capacity to retrieve childhood at will. 
So I work with executives and teams and lawyers and people in all different fields and industries to help them actually in an emotionally safe way, psychologically safe way, actually remember times when they were young to remember, to remember, right? That remembering, to remember a time when you were young and you felt alive and free to express your unique self without regard for reward. That's a profound form of storytelling and reclaiming, reclaiming our childhood. So science is really fascinating on this, Linda, that certain people in certain studies, when they can actually assume a seven-year-old mindset, are able to be more creative in, and flexible in resolving some challenges and problems. So, and I see it in our laboratories all of the time. So this is, I think, something that's, that does speak universally to many people. Who are you bringing to the day with you? The devotion question I mentioned, I also write down my three young genius traits every morning. So let's just do this real quickly, if you don't mind. Yeah. So yeah, so for you, Linda, like if, as I was going through that question, did, did a story come up for you or any images come up oh, for you? Yes. Like, I yeah, have a very yeah. recent yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How would you, what, what would be three traits you would use to describe Linda's young genius? I would say absolutely curiosity. I'm just curious about everyone. <laughs> I, I even sometimes pull over the car and I'll bring up the chair. I keep a chair in my car. So if I see sitting, so, somebody sitting by the road with a sign that says like COVID is a farce, I'll actually pull over and go sit next to them and talk to them about it, listen to their story and how they got there. So curiosity is really big for me. And I really love to be wrong. I know that sounds super kooky, but when I realize how wrong I am, I know that I feel like it's a leap forward to some new possibilities. Like, because when I was so wrong, uh, there's a million doors closed to me. So I love to be wrong. I, if you can think of those, and I was a child, I was really good at that too. And I could, and also I'm, I'm an artist. So I could see, I could see things in pieces of wire or scrap metal or what have you. So those are my I three things it. I tap into since I was a little kid. So I was recognizing all those qualities in you. It's really important for us to recognize them in ourselves, to have a very different, healthy self-regard. Also important for us to be recognized in different times, right? By people we trust. So I recognized all three of those qualities in you. And you're just saying, you know, and I'm going to restate this though. Um, I'm curious, humble, and artistic, right? And that can be really powerful for people to own, those traits, those genius traits. And then to say, today, I'm going to bring one or more of those traits with me to work. Today, I'm going to bring one or more of those traits to the meeting with the annoying client. You know, some themes we'll talk about, right? So, right? And so it's like, oh, there's this challenge. And I really, this is a way, it's become so ingrained in me, really, to think this way. But Believe me, I have challenges every day, unexpected ones, unbidden surprises. And it really, if, if I can pause myself and disrupt myself, I'm like, oh, how can I bring imaginative Jeffrey to this? Minor, imaginative, considerate, peaceful. Those are typically what comes up for me. Yeah, yeah so I, I really want to encourage everyone to sit quietly, maybe if they've got any opportunity at all after this interview and do that little exercise. Because, you know, I, I'm beginning to think humbleness, not recognizing our, our zones of genius is actually one of the limitations of getting goodness and progress to rise to the top in our world. Because the humble people won't talk about their zones of genius. And all the people stirring up the drama and the chaos, well, they're willing to just spout off about their attributes all day long. Yeah. And you know, we need so many different parts of the human race yeah. and human personality to come together for the incredibly mounting challenges that we do have that keep presenting themselves, right? Whether it's for the environment, whether it's for our family and home lives, education, as I know you're committed to and, and your daughter's committed to, the workplace, the workforce, the nature of work in this world. Yeah. And so if more of us could actually shift our self-regard, right? And say, hmm, I do have certain traits to bring to the table. I could actually help be part of seeing challenges as opportunities instead of just challenges as blocks, then yeah, that elevates all of us. So Melvin Connors, an incredible anthropologist I 
have profound respect for. And he has surveyed like the whole history of humanity. And he, he said that the evolution of our species and the survival of our planet requires more wonder. It's our choice. And this is just one way that we can make that choice every morning, which is like, how do I regard myself? Who could I bring? Who of me can I bring to the day? Who of me can I bring to this moment? Especially if you're looking ahead at some thing, some moment that you know is coming up in a day. And it's it's probably very savvy to remind yourself about which one of your best selves you, you can focus on when you when you know you're gonna hit that part of the day. That's so true. It's really and it does it does become a habit, right? And a habit not so that it's another default pattern, but a habit so that you can up the wonder ratio. Because what we're talking about today, I don't want your listeners to think that. I'm in wonder all the time. Uh, and I'm just so open to possibility all the time. I do have a pretty high ratio. But what I do encourage everyone to do is to find a way to up their wonder ratio, to up their wonder ratio and to change their lens of perception. Yeah. Well, maybe and maybe that's a um, that's a good place for us to close, because I know we've got less than five minutes here before you have to run. You know, you talk about in, in one of the places, by the way, just look up Jeffrey Davis's um, digital footprint and you're going to dive into a million places as I did where you have one aha moment after another. But one place I found, you talk about how to seek out wonder. And that's Mm. one of the messages I give people. I say, seek signs of goodness and progress because what you're seeking, you will find. So how do you seek out wonder? That's so true, right? What you and I are talking about is our perception of reality. And we all have limited perceptions of reality, moments of wonder just happen to expand our view of reality. So seek out wonder. All the different facets I've just given, openness, curiosity, and so forth, are different ways to seek out wonder. Young genius is a way. But this is in the context of a really important acronym, a foundational acronym, to give yourself a dose of wonder every day. So if your listeners can remember this, D-O-S-E, D is to to detect and define a default or downer pattern. So just notice, right? We all have negative thought patterns. And I really do have a worry mind. It's not so pervasive now, but I have a worry mind sometimes at 4 a.m. in the morning where I'm staring at the ceiling and it's just scanning uh, radio station WRRY. Hmm, what can Jeffrey worry about today? Well, let me give you the headlines. <laughs> so, right? And that's a downer pattern. And then I write out the scout report. Okay, thank you. Those are all things. Thank you very much. So define, write that default pattern, detect and define it. And then O is to pause and open up to and just feel that, right? Feel what that default pattern is like if that's what's governing your reality. For me, it's very constricted temples. I feel tight in the neck and shoulders. And so those are really important somatic signals for us. And the O piece is to open up and actually feel those somatic signals of that default downer pattern. Then it's like, okay, well, that's part of reality. Now I'm going to seek the surprise. I'm going to seek the wonder. And sometimes it's just a little shift. For some people, it's put away the device or move away from the screen or step outside for a few minutes. So this morning before school, my seven-year-old, whose name is Aletheia, unforgetfulness or deep remembering, she had, we had to wait for like day two or three to see if she could live into that name, which she does. She was having a hard time with math this morning. She was kind of, she was shut down and I recognized it. And I was like, you know what? I teach grownups how to break better and not just work hard, but how to break better. I said, let's go outside. Let's go walk. Let's go sit by the pond. And we did. Like, I was like, wow, this feels so different, right? It's a whole different reality. She was in a completely different space. And then we came back and sat down. We looked at math through a whole different lens of perception and connection. She got through it. High five math. We, seek, we saw wonder together. And then E is to extend the wonder. So me telling you the story, even as a way for me to extend that moment, even a way for me at the end of the day, I like to write down my three highlights. What were three moments that were just kind of highlights I want to remember? That is going to be one of my highlights today with Alethea. So that's a way to extend it. Share the story, share the wonder, share the goodness like you're talking about. This lets the ripples keep going. 
Yeah. All right. Well, this has been an extraordinary conversation, and I think we could go on. And I'm going to invite you back some someday. Oh, uh, thanks, Jeffrey. I think what we could do is we could use this concept and apply it to things that are getting a lot of us down: the news, how we handle wackiness on social media, how we, you know, deal with our our family person that we <laughs> can't stand to sit next to at Thanksgiving. Whatever it is, I would love to use this 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 wonder concept to sort out better habits about how we how we keep this one life that we have to live so precious and keep our dreams fresh so true can i send your listeners to a certain web page that uh, yes. give okay that's my last question yeah. do not leave us without telling us exactly what to do next i think if if they go to trackingwonder.com slash podcast bonus we've got uh, two links there one they can download the first chapter of my book and two, they can tr take a wonder at work assessment. It's about 20 questions. And then you'll get your assessment back along with about three concrete experimental tools you can take to track some wonder. That's great. And I, I got to say, this book may be one of those game changers. You know, mm. I, I have an idea just from looking at what I could see on the Internet. My copy's coming, but uh, there's a lot of big story about why I'm not where I usually live. I lost a mother-in-law last week, so I don't have the book. <laughs> but what I could see before when I looked at it was that you it's one of those books I think you would literally open anywhere and just start reading where your eyes lay. And you are going to find something that clicks in your mind, a perspective that seems to work for whatever you're, whatever is playing there. I hope so. And I have to give a shout out to Sounds True, my publisher, too, for doing a phenomenal job on the interior designs so that your listeners will love how it looks as well. All right. Well, great. Well, Jeffrey Davis, his book is Tracking Wonder, Reclaiming a Life of Meaning and Possibility in a World Obsessed with Productivity. Okay, Jeffrey, you have a great day. We're going to wrap up, let you go, and then we'll wrap up the show. But thank you so much for this wonderful hour with us. Thank you, Linda. It was an utter delight. I knew it would be. Take okay, care. Have a great day. You're doing the good work. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. So that was an amazing chat with Jeffrey Davis, Tracking Wonder. We could have gone down so many rabbit holes, and I plan to do that in the future with Jeffrey. His uh, concept about discovering wonder, finding it right where you are, being open to those moments that maybe we're missing. These are all things that are available to us as instant tools to live with, with a better appreciation of the opportunities in our life rather than always living under the fear of threat. So remember to join us at the Goodness Exchange because there are literally a thousand links to people like Jeffrey that are actually changing the future for us all with their insights. We There are articles there and 80 other podcasts with people as generous and genius as Jeffrey. And what we want most at the Goodness Exchange is to change the negative dialogue about our times and add in this expansive world of possibility because there are so many people just like him who are changing the future for us all. So thank you. I hope all the connections that we shared about goodness and progress will keep you through your week and you'll start finding all the wonder that we've been talking about. Have a great day.